This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Emily Wilkins is an award-winning congressional reporter who covers the House, Senate, and campaigns for Bloomberg government. If you don't live or work in Washington, D.C., it can be really difficult to tell what members of Congress are actually like in person or to get a window into how things do and don't work behind closed doors when Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate are trying to solve problems. There are few people anywhere who know more about what's actually happening on Capitol Hill than Emily. With major negotiations happening in Congress on gun control, as well as some very important primaries happening around the country that could be early signals of what's ahead in the 2022 election, we spoke with Emily about what she's seeing on the Hill, as well as in these races right now, where it could all go, and why it matters. If you want to hear past episodes or sign up for our email newsletter, which will deliver our best of directly to your inbox, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Monday. Our knowledgeable co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, led this interview. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. So, Emily, thank you very much for joining us again tonight. I'm very excited for the show because we've just got a ton of campaign results that came in yesterday, the 14th. We've got a ton of action on Capitol Hill, which can be rare with a bipartisan gun legislation that's being discussed. And I want to get into it with you at the granular level. So let's start out with gun legislation. We've seen different aspects of guns debated vigorously since 2013. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through how this current bill that's being debated in the Senate, I'm sure it's being debated in the House behind closed doors, compares to the original Toomey Mansion framework for background checks. Is this the same thing, more expansive? What do we need to know? That is a really good question. And to be honest, background checks just aren't playing really as big of a role. They're in there a little bit because we're going to see it, under the current framework, there would be expanded background checks for those 18 through 21 who are looking to purchase weapons. That's kind of a watered down version of the initial suggestion that maybe for uh, semi-assault weapons, assault weapons, the minimum age should be 21. That's not something Republicans went for. So we've got this sort of expanded background check. There are a couple different pieces of this framework. It is still coming together. I mean, as all legislation goes, the devil is in the details. So I think there's still a lot of sort of tentative support, a lot of kind of we like this, both from Democrats, from progressives, from Republicans. But no one is really willing to come out and like give their rubber stamp to this one until they see the language. And we're really kind of seeing that uh, on Capitol Hill today. I mean, they want to get this thing done before the July 4th break, which means they've got the rest of this week and all of next week. And in Senate land, that is not a lot of time to get something done. And you've seen them hit some sticking points. You have that whole piece on grants for states to try to encourage them to do red flag laws, which I'm sure your listeners know, but for like the one person who doesn't, basically, if you've got a family member or if you're a police officer and you're just like, hey, there's a person I know, I think they could be a danger to themselves or others. I'm going to go to the court and petition to have their guns removed from them and temporarily prevent them from buying guns. And Republicans are like, you know, there should be due process. And there, there's, there is that in a number of states laws, I think more than a dozen states. I'm not going to say the number because I think I'll get it wrong, but more, like, I can say more than a dozen states already have these red flag laws in place. And so this wouldn't mandate red flag laws. This wouldn't create a national red flag law, but it would kind of 
try to sweeten the pot for states who are looking into it. And of course, the question is, if this money is allocated for a state to enact a red flag law and they don't, does the state get the money? And we got Republican from Texas, Senator John Cornyn, really integral person on this, saying that he does want the funding extended for other crisis intervention programs, think mental health courts, veteran courts. So he still wants the state to, states to get money, even if they don't enact a red flag law. You have a couple of Democrats being like, no way on that. Uh, we're, we're not going to support that. So that's one sticking point they got to work through. Let me jump in there real quick. It seems like you mentioned that background checks weren't big. There is updated uh, background checks for those under 21 where they get to go into their backgrounds and check uh, juvenile records, for example, mental health issues that are that are public. And then also domestic abusers can't get weapons. But red flag laws, it seems like this incentive was rather large. And if we look at the states that passed them, you, you said 12 plus, it really comes down to all blue states and then Florida because there was an effective conservative campaign after Parkland and that massacre. On the other side, you have Oklahoma, a red state that, that passed a law saying they will never implement red flag laws, regardless of incentives or anything of the sort. So will Democrats, because they're in such a difficult position where they rely totally on Republicans to pass this bill, will they rubber stamp anything regarding red flag laws, even if the money isn't directly tied to it and states get money anyways? That's a really good question, Justin. I mean, look, we saw Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii kind of say that she wasn't going to support a bill if it had that. But I do think there's a certain question. You know, you can say yes or no when sort of all these things are up in the air. I think we're still at the point where rubber hasn't quite met the road. And I imagine there will be a push to get something done. That's something I've heard from a lot of Democrats saying, look, this proposed framework, it's a step forward. It's progress. Obviously, more needs to be done. This isn't all that we want to have happen. But I think Democrats have they just realized the reality of the situation. It's incredibly tough to do something on gun laws. And they are closer now than they have been in years and years. And, and I don't think they want to, to lose this chance, even though, of course, there is that frustration then that Republicans really do kind of hold all the cards in these negotiations. It seems like the Democrats have had to make a lot of compromises, just like you've said. And one area where we can clearly see that compromises have been made is in regard to background checks. I remember after Sandy Hook, the phrase that we kept on hearing as a proposal was universal background checks, universal background checks. And this was often one of the questions that appeared on polls of public perspectives on gun safety. And it always pulled very well. This was often regarded as one of the pieces of low-hanging fruit that might be the most achievable in some kind of negotiation. But we can see in the framework that's been announced from the Senate that universal background checks are not really on the table, that they chose to focus on the red flags and issues of domestic abusers, and they've decided to leave private sales unchecked. So there will be some kind of expanded background checks by making new rules about who's a licensed dealer, but the private sales still aren't going to be checked. So- Emily, how difficult of a compromise was this for the Democrats? And how substantial is the change that we are making, probably, in regard to background checks? How much is really still left out? Those are both incredibly good questions. 
And I mean, there definitely still are many, many components. I think you're right to call out background checks as something that you'll hear Democrats frequently mention. They will mention the immense amount of public support that there is on it. There is public support on background checks, but you haven't really seen that translate to votes, right? There aren't voters who are going to the polls and saying, the only issue that I care about is whether or not a lawmaker supports background checks. And I think for Republicans, particularly with the the power of the gun lobby, even as it, as it has undergone different types of sort of crisis and scandal in the last couple of years, they are still a powerful force. Um, and there is still a very strong demographic of voters who, you know, if they he- get even a faint whiff that some Someone's trying to take away their Second Amendment rights, they will go out and that'll be a huge concern for them. So I still think the power for the voters is, is very much with those who portray themselves as, as pro-Second Amendment, who really do want to fight for gun rights. And I think that that's something that lawmakers are incredibly cognizant of. I mean, look at what happened with Congressman Chris Jacob up in Buffalo. I mean, his community had to suffer through a major mass shooting. He comes out saying that he will now favor a ban on assault weapons. And within a week, the Republican establishment has basically been like, we're not going to back you. And he's just like, I'm not I'm not going to run again. Like there there's no there's no point. I'm out. And I think it kind of still shows the the strength of voters who are for gun rights, the strength of the gun lobby, the importance sort of that voters Republicans see with this having in their block of voters. And I feel like I'm I'm kind of on a side tangent for your question, John. So feel free to just like drag me back if you would like. But I do think it's kind of an important thing to point out that Democrats do realize, I mean, this is what Democrats are up against, right? When they're trying to get Republicans to come along with them, that Republicans are under such immense pressure that it is difficult. And you'll see Democrats continue to push this stuff. But even for something like banning assault weapons, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer in the House was asked, you know, is this bill, is this legislation going to come up soon, this ban on assault weapons? And I think Democrats have had a hesitancy in bringing it up because you do have some Democrats, your Jared Goldens, your Kurt Schraders, who are not supportive of this type of legislation. And Democrats, Kurt Schrader lost his primary, but Jared Golden is still in the mix and they're going to need him to win if they want to win in November. And so why would they try and have him take that tough vote? I think another reason that they've decided not to prioritize those assault weapons, long rifles that are semi-automatic, is because it is really true that they're not the largest contributor to gun violence. And really, as we can see, handguns are by far the most dangerous weapon in the United States. So many of the gun deaths that come in the United States are with handguns, suicides, domestic homicides. If you look at what they've prioritized, there is, I think, a real logic to it. They're looking at these domestic abusers that are often the most likely to commit crimes, usually with handguns, and saying, let's focus on that if we want to have the most impact. But they are still, like we were saying, leaving the private market totally outside the scope of background checks. So it is still quite modest, but hopefully it's going to make some difference. Yeah, and you've definitely seen also Democrats try and go up against ghost guns, those guns that don't have any serial numbers against them straw purchases where it's one person who's purchasing a gun for someone else who wouldn't be able to do so. So you are seeing stuff like that being proposed in the framework. And again, it's going to be interesting to see when the actual language comes out, what that's going to look like and and what it's really going to mean. Emily, I'm wondering, you mentioned something that's very poignant, and I experienced this on the Hill in a Republican office. You have a lot of people outside of our field of work who don't realize that the NRA is not really pushing everything. It's more so the fact that these gun voters are pro-guns and they, damn it, they come out and vote 
no matter what. So I'm wondering, what is the motivation for these Republicans that are willing to negotiate the 10 in the Senate and then however many in the House? I mean, you do look at some in the Senate and there are ones who have been willing to sort of cross the line and address other things. It's a great question. I spend most of my time in the House and on the Senate, so I haven't had time to personally ask a number of these a me- number of these members like John Cornyn exactly what their motivation has been. I know that Cornyn's been involved in other gun talks. I know that obviously, I mean, you are the senator of a state where this tragic mass shooting happens and there is an impetus to do something. And there is the idea that, you know, if you want everyone to come along, that it does need to be a little bit more than mental health, a little bit more than school security. But how do you sort of be able to say, look, we've addressed this issue in a holistic manner without touching guns. And so I think that is kind of what's being brought to the table here. I think a lot of times these conversations about various topics will go on behind the scenes and there is just not enough momentum to really bring them to the forefront. And then you have something tragic happen like the shooting in Texas, like the shooting in Buffalo, like the shooting. I mean, there have been so many in in the last month. It's absolutely tragic. And that really brings things to the forefront. And it has people asking and looking to their elected leaders and saying, well, like, what are you doing? To a certain extent, Yes, you can, you know, be a Republican and only play to Republican voters and be a Democrat and only play to Democratic voters. But it is always a good idea to make sure that you have the middle on your side. And polling shows that a lot of Americans do support some sorts of regulations on guns. I think it's just making sure that as you put those regulations in place, you can also go back to those who really support Second Amendment rights, those who really support gun ownership and say, I have not voted for anything to to restrict the ability to own the gun. We're not taking guns away from gun owners who have not done anything wrong and just kind of reassure those that these laws really don't impact them at all. So coming off of Justin's question there, I mean, if we understand the motivation that some Republicans might have to support the framework that's been proposed, on the Senate side, we already have an idea of how many people that might be and who. But maybe it's not an answer question on the House side. Can you tell us, Emily, what maybe we should expect in terms of numbers, roughly, and maybe who some of the figures might be that we might expect to support this on the House side? So the House Republicans have been very mum. Their official line, which, to be fair, is the official line of the progressive Democrats who I ask about this is, well, things look encouraging, but we haven't seen the text yet. And, and that's, that's, that's the song and dance. We haven't seen the text yet. We haven't seen the text yet, which it come, it's not, it's not ridiculous. If I was a lawmaker, I would be doing the exact same thing because you don't want to throw your support behind a bill and then have the advocacy groups who back you come to you and be like, Hey, actually they wrote something into the bill that we totally hate. And now you're just going to have to totally do a 180 on your support for this. So I can understand where they're coming from. But in terms of what to expect and sort of who to watch, I think we learned a lot when Democrats did their vote on their own gun legislation the other week. Now, granted, this was a more partisan package. We knew that it would not be getting a lot of Republican support. I did find it interesting, though, because they broke it down. It was this package of votes that was called like the Protect Our Kids Act. but It was actually made up of seven different pieces of legislation. And they had a vote on each one of those pieces. They structured it in a way that like not no individual piece could actually advance to the Senate, that it had to advance as a package. But it really gave you a chance to see which proposals that Democrats were putting forward could potentially get a little bit more bipartisan support and who those Republicans who would be who are sort of willing to raise their hand and say, actually, I think this is a good idea. And on the final package, you saw five Republicans vote for it. 
no one super shocking. It was a lot of kind of your moderates, your Fred Uptons, your John Katko's. But the one name I'll highlight of the four is Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, because he's the only one from that list who's actually coming back next year. Everyone else is running for other office or has just decided to get out of politics altogether. But he's the only one facing re-election who actually went ahead and took that vote. And then you had the two Democrats, Kurt Schrader and Jared Golden, vote against that. That vote did not particularly surprise anyone. So I think that there, whatever the Senate sends over, there will be some level of support from your kind of usual suspect center line work across the other side Republicans. I think the interesting thing is going to be, do you see broader support from it for leadership? This time, House leadership sent out a memo for the House package saying we're going to whip against the package as a whole. They did not whip against the seven individual pieces, just the whole thing. And it'll be interesting to see what they think of what the Senate puts together. I think, though, at this point, we're mostly just going to have to wait for the actual language to get something definitive on that. And I think what underscores what you just said about House Republicans being mom is about maybe a month ago, we had Representative Gonzalez on the show from Uvalde, and he was talking about immigration and he was talking about how he wants to bring his party into the future with supporting legal immigration, with increasing quotas, with increasing refugees, things that you don't generally hear from Republicans in the middle of campaign season. And it was very refreshing just to hear somebody not towing the party line. But when it comes to guns, He's really let John Cornyn, who is very close with Rep Gonzalez, do all of the work. Do you have any take on the representative from Ubalde being kind of mom? And I will say I do like him having like interviewed him. I, I respect him, at least. I will say that uh, that I actually haven't had the chance to talk with him a great deal. It's nothing against him. There are just 435 members of Congress and you can only talk to so many on any given day. What I will say is that if you're a lawmaker and, and Justin, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you know this, obviously, there are only kind of so many things that you can have your hand in and things that you want to kind of be careful about talking about. You, you know, if Republicans come up with this agreement, you don't want to sort of get ahead of the agreement. You don't want to kind of draw any sort of red lines in the sand that are going to wind up being a problem. I do think it, it is it is interesting, though, that you mentioned that because to me, the sort of underlying tone that I get, and I could be totally off here, is that House Republicans do want to get to a yes. They do realize that a number of their districts have been impacted by these mass shootings. They realize that there is a sense, even while you have the pro-Second Amendment folks being very strong in their positions, there's also a group of Americans who are sort of like, hey, this continues to be a problem. And, you know, we don't want to take anyone's guns away. We want people to own guns, but we need to have this stop happening. And so I can definitely see if if a Senate Republicans can come up with an agreement that House Republicans feel like they can support, that they can pitch to gun owners, that they're not going to, you know, have various groups pushing back against. That'll sort of be the other interesting thing. What does the NRA weigh in on? What do some of these other major conservative groups, how do they view the bill? How are they going to pitch it? That, you know, has got to be another concern because if you back a bill and a conservative group thinks that, you know, oh, that makes you a rhino and then they have the power to potentially run some really negative ads against you and that could hurt you a lot. So I think it's, it's a matter of kind of everyone's looking around, making sure that they're in lockstep with each other on this, that no one's getting ahead of things. 
I think for immigration, it's not an issue that's in the forefront right now. So maybe there's a little more comfort talking about that. Certainly, you know, if you talk to Republicans, there is a lot of openness to doing something on immigration, to having some sort of immigration reform. I think just at this point, everyone's dreading the the A word, that amnesty word. They're just at this point is not the momentum needed to bring those conversations back to the place they were in in 2013 when you actually did see a Senate bill and and then everything fell apart. I'm still smiling before I, we go to John for this question, because you just said the dirtiest four letter word I've heard on this show. Rhino. It is the <laughs> dirtiest <laughs> for a GOP caucus. Oh, my God. Everybody's sweating. They're blushing. I actually have to ask, have you have you heard the <laughs> word dino now? Because I heard that one for the first time the other day. Oh, no. Democrat in name only. Dino. No. It's all like a no true Scotsman fallacy. The whole thing. <laughs> So, Emily, we're talking a bit about the objections that many conservative members might have to the gun proposal, right? But it's interesting that there's also perhaps some space for criticism of the bill from the other side. We've seen how I believe uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez has publicly objected to some of what's in the Senate framework, in particular that juvenile offenses might be included inside the scope of background checks. And it does bring back memories of how the assault weapons ban was part of the crime bill in 1994, which has been so heavily criticized by criminal justice reformers. And so I'm wondering if we might expect that some other civil libertarians will be objecting to the bill on those grounds, that it's an aggressive form of policing, especially when you're reviewing juvenile misconduct. Yeah. So I was actually in the scrum of reporters when we grabbed the congresswoman before she went on the House floor to vote. And she generously gave us some of her time. And I will say that the gist that I had from that brief conversation, and she might have spoken with other people after that, is that she's not a no yet, but she has some concerns about what the language could be, that this is something that she will be watching for in the language. And this could be a thing that winds up coming up and concerning more members as far as what does school safety look like? Does it lead to potentially more guns in schools? I know that was a concern that Pramila Jayapal, the head of the, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, had. So it's it's not that there aren't any concerns. I mean, there are definitely concerns on the left, but there are also concerns on the right. I was talking with Congressman Don Bacon the other day, and he's like, yeah, I want to see exactly what this legislation looks like on red flag laws. I know there are also concerns on the so-called boyfriend loophole that basically says, hey, if you are convicted of domestic abuse and you're married, you can't have guns. But if you're just dating the person, that's that's fine. They're looking to close that loophole. But how do you define dating? which I feel I feel like you could toss that question to like a, an entire group of like DC millennials and we could go all night on like, how the heck do you define dating? We don't know. But back to a more serious note, I, I think, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record on this, but as, as a policy wonk, I, I do kind of subscribe to the devil is in the details. And I can understand on a, how a topic as sensitive as this at a moment where it seems like victory is so close I don't think any lawmaker wants to begin drawing red lines in the sand. At the same point, I mean, that it's going to be interesting to watch progressives. I was actually kind of thinking about this as I was talking about the last question about how House Republicans would respond. I mean, you had the infrastructure bill. You had that bipartisan support in the Senate. You saw a number of Republican senators go for it and say, this is awesome. And then you saw it go to the House and barely any Republicans vote for it. 
And then one Republican that did vote for it basically lost his primary in part because he voted for it when his when he was from West Virginia, David McKinley. Like this is the same state as Joe Manchin and Shelley Moore Capito, a completely different result. And then for, of course, for infrastructure, and sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but tying this back together, you saw the six members of the squad go ahead and not vote for that infrastructure bill because it wasn't everything they wanted. So I, I think there's still some interesting dynamics here at play. I feel like, you know, progressives kind of understand as a whole, the the caucus of like all like 90 plus members, they are willing to move ahead to make progress to accept even what might amount to a small baby step. I think the interesting group to watch there, though, is going to be those six members of of the squad and see, you know, if their concerns are are addressed in this legislation, particularly, again, interesting because, you know, this is very much a game that's going on in the Senate right now as far as negotiations. The House really isn't as vol- involved. So it'll be very interesting to see what comes out and then how House members respond to it. So then just to sum up guns and then we'll move on to another policy issue. I love that you're a policy wonk. It warms my heart even more that you do campaigns because now we can relate. I did policy in the House and then campaigns. So this is my favorite type of discussion. So just to sum it up, it sounds like everybody's surprised that there is a tentative framework and then everybody, no matter the faction, is walking on eggshells. Is that kind of where we're at right now? Yeah, I, I think that's basically it. People are pleased that there is something. No one, I mean, you've heard, you've seen Mitch McConnell come out and be like, yeah, if the framework is what they say it is, that sounds good to me. Like that, that is a ringing endorsement from, from him who does not usually give a lot of endorsements on legislation. So I think, yes, everyone's trying to be cautious right now. Everyone kind of realizes that the Republicans are the ones who control the process. They they want to make sure that things can get to a yes. But I think everyone's kind of once you have the text out, that's kind of when sort of you're going to start seeing more people come out more strongly, because, of course, once you get the text, there is always an opportunity to amend that text before it hits the floor while it's in committee, after it hits the floor. And so there is kind of, at that point, I think we're going to see people really crystallize what they want in the bill, where their concerns are, and if their concerns will keep them from voting on the bill. Congress looks ready to pass the most important gun reform legislation on the federal level in more than three decades. It comes following mass shootings in Texas and Buffalo and the outrage and protests that have followed. CBS News' John Diaz here in studio this morning with more on this. John? Well, Chris and Mary, good morning to both of you. And after years of inaction to tighten gun laws, well, things look like they could soon change. Gun reform advocates say, though, they aren't major alterations, but do represent some movement. It's an agreement that has Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer hopeful and one that he says has taken decades to reach. For the first time in close to 30 years, Congress seems ready to reject the vice-like grip that the NRA has had on the Congress and move forward to meaningful gun legislation. Sunday, a bipartisan group of senators, including 10 Republicans, outlined modest gun reforms that could soon be voted on in Capitol Hill. With these select Republicans now backing it, it could advance in the Senate once introduced as legislation. For the audience, what she just explained is like we're in the second inning of a nine inning game. But Emily, I wanted to pivot a lot in the media, just cover it like it's done, but it's not. And it's good that you're bringing that nuance. So I wanted to pivot to something else that you've been really focused on. And maybe many in the audience have forgotten, but there is still an attempt to get some, I don't know what they're calling it, skinny build back better. 
reconciliation. Recon- <laughs> no one, no one says Build Back <laughs> okay. Better anymore. Okay, that's like saying Voldemort. It is, it is the bill that shall not be named. Don't do is, that. Is reconciliation more understandable for the public? Absolutely not. But, but, but if you're a Democrat and you've already fallen on your face once, why would you? I think this is the key now. It's like everyone's trying to kind of like keep it down. Don't talk to the media. Be super low key about it because Democrats don't want more egg on their face than what they already got from Build Back Better. OK, so the bill that shall not be named. I don't know what's in it. I know. And maybe you can shine some light. I know that prescription drug reform in some way is not only popular, but President Joe Manchin has give his blessing that this is something he, he would support. So could you go into what's in it? But also, I'm really interested on, since you are a policy process wonk, Emily, is there enough time left on the calendar to pass anything before they leave for August and never come back to legislate, except for maybe a spending bill here and there uh, before the campaign season? Okay, I'm going to take your second question first, because I feel like yes. that's the one I'm more confident okay. answering. I don't think so. We have, let's see here. So we're halfway through the June session, but we're not even, we're even more than half because they like, they leave tomorrow and then we've got one week left. One week where the focus is going to be on guns. Also remember that they have that U.S.-China Competitiveness Manufacturing Development Bill. This is the bill of many names. It was called called USICA. It was called Endless (laughs) Frontiers. Basically, U.S. is falling behind China in manufacturing. We're just going to try and bump ourselves up there is, is how is how you can think about it. But that one, they're also trying to get that done, at least a good chunk of it before the June recess. And then they got to pass it in July. And they're also got to figure out appropriations bills. And they also got to figure out that big defense spending bill that's got to go every year, the NDAA. And they only have three weeks in July to do that. And when we say weeks, we're not even talking about a full seven days or a full five days. We're talking about four days, really. And then we hit that August recess. There's a brief chunk of time in September. And then that's it. So even if something were to get done, even if miraculously, Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer were to step out of their office and say, hey, we got something. It still would be incredibly difficult to, I mean, look how, how look how long it's taking to write the gun bill. And that's a significantly smaller bill with significantly more detailed framework done on it. I mean, you asked me what is in this reconciliation bill. I mean, we've heard Joe Manchin say certain things like, oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm open to lowering drug prices. He's talked about being open to universal pre-K. He's talked about, you know, Democrats are still kind of pushing care economy type things, seeing what can be in there. Manchin's also talked about wanting to reduce the deficit. And Democrats are like, yeah, we're totally cool with that. We have a bunch of ideas for taxes. And then Kirsten Sinema is like, hey, guys, I don't like any of that stuff. Then you're right back, you know, president right behind President Joe Manchin is President Kirsten Sinema, who has her own concerns. So, I I mean, look, I, I don't I don't want to never say never, because I literally made a prediction yesterday that that absolutely was totally wrong. So my crystal ball is still very much broken, but it would be, it would be hard. It would be incredibly difficult to do at this point with the time remaining on the clock. And with the fact that even for the things that Joe Manchin is agreement on with a lot of Democrats, a lot of those things, you would have difficulty getting that past Kirsten Sinema. I suppose this is sort of an obvious point, but it can never really be emphasized enough just how precious the resource of time is. 
And just those days on the legislative calendar, that's the scarcest and most valuable resource of all. But it does kind of trickle into the campaign environment and creates problems of expectations because the priority setting is so important. And it you get yourself in a very difficult position when you promise so many competing priorities because it's not even possible. It is not physically possible to attend to all of these. And if many different members of your political constituency, your political coalition, are all expecting that their issue is a priority, so many of them are going to be inevitably disappointed because you can only choose one. And you've already seen members at the idea that there actually might be a skinny reconciliation package passed already begin to try and like push forward their various priorities. Like I know there is an important cutoff that's coming up that deals with health care. That's something that has to be addressed. And you're trying to figure out how to do that. You're seeing groups push things like that. You're seeing groups, you know, talk about the importance of the care economy, talk about elder care, child care. Is there a way that we could get more funding for parents? And you, know, everyone, again, has their priorities and everyone's trying to push to get it into this package. And at this point, we don't even have a framework unless this is something that, you know, Manchin and Schumer are keeping extremely mum on. And in which case, then, you know, who knows if it's actually going to get enough support to pass through Democrats because you really do need everyone involved on the Democratic side to, to get this thing through. And if it's all being kept in the dark, if people you know don't know what's going on, because a lot of Democrats don't, then there's a good chance that even if they do emerge with a framework tomorrow, that you're going to see a number of very serious concerns pop up. Emily, I've got a question for you about this Build Back Better process. Right now, so much of the focus is on inflation. It's inflation, inflation, inflation. And we know that there's many contributing factors to inflation. There's the war in Ukraine and what that's meant for energy and food exports in the global market, the supply chain crunch that's happened in China because of COVID lockdowns. But another thing that's contributed is government spending because it's increased the purchasing power of so many Americans. And there was huge spending after the coronavirus. But Build Back Better was going to be another huge injection of money into the American economy. And now that inflation is the focus, I'm wondering if maybe some Democrats secretly have almost a sense of relief that it didn't pass because it would have continued contributing to this problem that's now become the priority of the government. No, I think that's definitely a serious concern or serious, at least, thing to keep in mind and to consider. And it's interesting to see how Democrats talk about this. I mean, you talk to Democrats about inflation, and if they are being good and sticking to their talking points, they will pivot to lowering prices. And you can you know, hear them say, well, look, yes, the price is going up, which is why we need to put a cap on insulin at $35 as you know, the House passed, I, I think, just the, the other month, if not two months ago. That's why you'll hear them say we should be lowering the cost for child care. We should be lowering the cost for health care. We should be finding ways to really assist Americans in other areas of cost for their life. And that's partly because there is really only so much that they can do on inflation. They can try to pass supply chain bills. I'm interested to hear the messaging when they, when, if this U.S.-China competition bill really gets underway. You've already heard Democrats start to message on that as being a bill that's going to tackle the inflation and tackle backlogs in the supply chain. I think, you know, for Democrats, it's, it's, a, it's become sort of a, a messaging thing that they have to do, that they can really only do so much when it comes to concrete inflation. 
and that they kind of have to find other ways to talk about it. And in that way, ironically, it might almost be better if they were able to actually pass something and get it onto the president's desk and then to be able to say, oh, yeah, well, hey, uh, inflation is higher, but isn't it now nice that the price of medicine has gone down, that the price of childcare has gone down? The problem, of course, is that, you know, you don't really have an avenue for those things to pass in the Senate unless, again, something magically comes together on these this reconciliation piece, which I would not suggest betting money on if you are considering doing so. So that kind of leaves them in this bit of a tricky situation where it really is now reliant on their talking points and their pointing to bills that pass the House, but haven't gone and likely aren't going to go anywhere in the Senate. So no one then has told you that they're glad that Build Back Better failed because it would have contributed to inflation. You haven't yet heard a sense of relief from any members on that front. To be fair, I have not put that question directly to a lot of members. Washington has a way there's never like a true like postmortem for a bill. There's never a moment where people come out and they're just like, it's dead. They kind of are just like, oh, you know, we're still working on it, but we're looking for other avenues for that priority. That was really big for us. To be fair to, to you and your question, it's not something I've directly put to lawmakers, but I know that they are freaking out a lot about inflation. And even before inflation got to the point where we were at this kind of, oh, shit moment, Republicans were saying, right from the start, you know, that Build Back Better was going to raise inflation, that it was going to raise prices, that it was going to be a concern. And certainly those talking points have only become uh, stronger and more concrete now that we've seen inflation go up and and really haven't gotten any signs of when it is going to, to go back down. At the supermarket, the petrol station and the local cafe, the cost of everyday items is rising sharply across the United States and ordinary Americans have noticed. Everything that we need, coffee cups, coffee, sugar, um, milk, everything is a lot more expensive, everything is inflated. The U.S. Consumer Price Index rose by 6.8% in the 12 months to November, the sharpest year-on-year increase in almost 40 years. A broad range of sectors are affected. Bacon prices are up by 21%, eggs up 8%, while petrol has jumped by nearly 60%. It's a real bump in the road. It does affect families. When you walk in the grocery store and you're paying more for whatever you're purchasing, it matters. The White House had insisted the pain was temporary, blaming the pandemic for creating problems such as supply chain issues and worker shortages. But with consumers still feeling the pinch, policymakers are now under pressure, and many economists expect early interest rate rises are on the way. It is at the oh shit moment. It's really bad. So I want to pivot a little bit to something that is very serious and you work in politics, you are in the Capitol every day. So obviously you love what's going on with our country, the government. I'm the same way. John's the same way. It beats the governments of a lot of other countries. How about that? (laughs) I would argue all of the other countries. That's just my uh, personal opinion. And what you're doing is a good thing, objectively, right? You're trying to shine light on darkness and hold power to account, at least Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, basically, my my job is to provide transparency into a system and to give people that are in government and deal with government the information that they need to make the best decisions possible for their constituencies. 
which are hopefully like basically the American people. But, you know, <laughs> really getting to the root of the fourth of state, Justin, you're really uh, kind of questioning the whole uh, the whole system. I, did, here. I didn't realize there'd be a philosophical part. Well, <laughs> doing a deep dive analysis. Justin, is this going to go into your uh, research seminar on the, the, the meaning of journalism? My only job is to generate clicks and get more flags on Twitter. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of journalists that take it that way. I, maybe Justin has just been appointed the new um, editorial director of CNN and is trying to figure out how to do the job. Ombudsman or something like that. Now I'm just using terms. I don't even know what they mean. So this has gone totally off the rails. No, I'm, I'm winding this up because I'm going to ask you, Emily, about the January 6th committee. And the first question is going to be about the impact it's going to have on campaigning. So that's like not as like serious a matter as the the committee really is. But what are you hearing from Democrats on their hopes for this to have an impact on the elections in 2022? Because I think it's fair game. Nobody's holding their breath for like Donald Trump to be indicted by the Justice Department. I know the sixth committee can't do that. So campaigning, what are you hearing? So this is actually a question that that I have asked lawmakers, and I'm glad I get to like recover myself after admitting that I haven't (laughs) asked them the other question. But So basically, I've put this to a lot of frontliners, right? The ones whose races really matter. And the thing that they very quickly pivot to is this is not a kitchen table issue. I am focused on kitchen table issues. Gas prices are high. Prices at the grocery store are high. That is something that I need to address for my constituents. And that is a really primary concern of theirs, which makes sense. I go to the Capitol every day and I walk through halls that I watched on a video get overrun by a mob. I, you know, when I initially saw what happened on January 6th, I was in Georgia covering the uh, the Senate runoff. But I mean, just imagine your place of work that you go to every day, getting overrun by, by a riot and seeing the tear gas and seeing the officers who, you know, usually just wave you without a problem, suddenly fighting off giant mob. I mean, it was a really shocking image for me and I wasn't even there. And I know a number of people who were there, they're still struggling with the after effects of that day, the PTSD, the trauma that came with not really knowing what was going to happen. And I think in DC, a lot of people, if if you weren't someone who was there that day, you know someone who was there that day. And I think in that term, it's it's really sort of prominent and important to us. And I think to all Americans, because you know, this is kind of the culmination of someone who tried to overturn an election. And I think in that sense, it is important. But at the same point, it's not when I lived in Michigan, I'd get in my car every day and and drive to work and pass a zillion gas station signs. And, you know, I wouldn't once think about the U.S. Capitol because why? I lived in Michigan. And so I think there's that balance to kind of strike there where Democrats will say this is really important. We should get the facts out there. We need to get the timeline right. We need to get the history right. But if you are one of those Democrats in that really critical district, this just isn't something that is really going to be central to your campaign. Now, I think what is interesting is that if you talk to Democrats who are in slightly more blue districts, they will say that they think this will have an impact. And I think that a little bit ties back to turnout in the midterms. Turnout matters so much. It matters in every election, but especially in midterms, because turnout tends to be much smaller. And if you can really remind Americans kind of what they're choosing between, between the Democrats versus a party that had a leader who tried to overturn an election, if you can really make that case in a very salient way. And I think it's also interesting that you're seeing 
other lawmakers really get tied into it. Yeah, Trump's not going to be on the ballot in 2022, but you're starting to see more and more Republican lawmakers being asked for data, being subpoenaed by the committee, having video of them. I know obviously a big story today was Congressman Barry Loudermilk. I don't think he's someone who most Americans have heard of, but suddenly he's all over the news because there is video footage of him uh, taking uh, individuals on a tour on January 5th who were then at the riots on January 6th. And I think that they're trying to kind of paint this overall picture of not just Trump, but also the Republican Party. And for that to be something that's very much in the minds of voters. So I I don't think anyone thinks this is going to January 6th is going to be a make or break issue when it comes to campaigns. I don't think anyone thinks it's going to be a top issue when it comes to campaigns. But I think it's going to be a point that some Democrats, particularly those in more blue areas and more Democratic areas, are really going to be able to point to to kind of make the case that that, hey, much more is at stake in this election than exactly how much the gas you put in your car cost. And you should really be thinking about that when you decide whether you're going to make time in November to come out to the polls. Emily, this point that you made about how shocking the act of violence is in a workplace that means something to you, that you know the people that have a connection to the building and what they think about the building, witnessing violence happening there. It reminds me, I'm not in DC, but I remember as a college intern when I was meant to give capital tours. We always talked about this event called the Caning of Sumner. It was a staple of the tour. Justin knows what I'm talking about. Emily knows what I'm talking about. We would talk about this event where a member from the House of Representatives crossed over to the Senate side and was beating a senator with a stick. And we would point to the spot that happened in the chair where it happened. And we would say, can you believe that this shocking act of violence occurred here in the U.S. Capitol? And this was an event that happened 165 years ago. And we were still talking about it 165 years later as a shocking, violent event that occurred in the Capitol. Can you believe it happened here? And I mean, thinking about that and the historical scope, I mean, it really draws into relief how significant of a moment this was and what an extraordinary violation of the Capitol it was and how it fits into American history. And it's not just uh, Democrats who give that tour and know about that event and have that idea of the historical scope. It's also all the Republican offices and all the interns and staffers who work there. And so, Emily, as people are watching these hearings and being reminded about what happened and considering how it fits into history, I mean, we know in public that there hasn't been that much from the Republican side, but what are you hearing from the staffers who work in those offices about how they're reacting to what's being presented by the committee? I think that's a really good question. I think to a certain extent, you talk to Republicans about January 6th and the vast majority of them, with some exceptions, they'll note that the Justice Department is running an investigation, that there are prosecutions underway, that those who are at the Capitol you know, are now facing charges, they're facing jail time, they're facing punishments. And they will say you know, that that's kind of how it should be. And then, of course, they'll then pivot to the fact that, you know, they'll be like, well, January 6th, you know, the commission's very partisan. They're just going after Trump. You know, it's just a show, a circus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is a a bit of difference there in kind of how they talk about the day itself versus how they talk about the follow up on the day. Uh, One interesting thing that I had the chance to dig into recently, if you remember, Before there was the discussion about the January 6th commission, there was a discussion about an independent group that 
would be sort of like the 9-11 style commission. So to make it clear, it's the 9-11 style commission versus the current select, January 6th select committee. And you had John Katko, the Republican, work with uh, Benny Thompson, the Democrat, come up with a proposal, present it, and then it wound up knocking the blessing of Kevin McCarthy. You still saw 35 Republicans go ahead and say, yes, we do want this independent commission as you know, our colleague John Katko has negotiated it, and we think it's a good deal. And since then, you've seen those members actually be attacked in a number of ads saying, oh, you know, they supported this January 6th select committee and they did not support the select committee. They supported the independent commission. But of course, it, it's it's a very fine, fine nuance. And if you don't follow Capitol Hill very closely, as most people don't, because they have jobs and lives and, and whatnot, I, I don't know what it's like to have a life. I imagine it's very nice. They don't necessarily understand the difference of it. I took so great offense at that. <laughs> I just want you to know. <laughs> I'm sorry, Justin. Never, never mean, never mean to offend you. But it, it just is interesting how this issue has been twisted, and this is re- an issue that Republicans have used against Republicans. We saw Alex Mooney use it against David McKinley in their member-on-member race. We are seeing Congresswoman Mary Miller use it against Congressman Ronnie Davis in their member-on-member race in Illinois. And I think it just goes to show that there is sort of really this division and duality that exists between the horror and the violence of that day and then the January 6th select committee and what they are doing. And I think it's sort of this compartmentalization that allows Republicans, a number of Republicans at least, to kind of say, take the trauma of the day, justify it as, yes, that was bad and I've spoken out against it and things are being done on it versus, you know, this select committee is obviously partisan and really only only two Republicans supported the select committee. And those are now surprised uh, Liz Cheney, Adam, Adam Kinzinger, who sit on it. And there is, has sort of been this, this discrepancy between what happened on the day and the response to it. So you just, it's like you're reading my mind. I want to go to, and we'll touch on last night's elections in, in primaries, but I want to go to Illinois 15th with Miller and Davis. I remember Rodney Davis as being this sensible moderate kind of house leader. He's good looking. He's good on the stump. But now he's facing what seems to be a really, really hard primary from Miller. So so can you just tell us what's going on here? Who has the upper hand? Does Davis still have a chance? At this point, what you've kind of seen, I mean, here's the lay of the land. Yes. Like Rodney Davis is seen as someone who's willing to work across the aisle. He might not necessarily be your most moderate member. Like he still is very much a conservative, uh, but he is someone who kind of does have that bipartisan record. He is the top Republican on the House Administration Committee, which tells you that he's he's got pretty good marks from his colleagues and leadership. You don't get spots uh, like being chair if you don't have something like that. Former staffer worked in the House. And then you have Mary Miller, and she is a freshman, and she's really been backed by Trump. She is definitely more aligned with sort of the more conservative for the right wing of the party. And it has really just been a, a take take the gloves off type primary. Uh, she's the one who has Trump endor- Trump's endorsement. She's used Trump's endorsement in her campaigning. It's really sort of gotten to be a, a bit of a nitty gritty fight, but at the same time, point, you know, you do see Rodney Davis. There are groups that are backing him, that are supporting him, that are pouring money into his campaign. I think there are some Republicans who he's certainly not a Liz Cheney. 
he has spoken out very loudly and clearly that, you know, he objects to the January 6th select committee. He's been very vocal, you know, in his support of Trump and sort of of Republicans really sort of rejecting Democrats. He hasn't pitched himself as someone who works across the aisle. He's really sort of pitched himself as, as a strong conservative. And I think it'll be interesting to see what is the result. I mean, it's always interesting with a member on member race. It kind of throws a lot of different things into the air. I certainly don't think that that you can count him out at this point. I don't think you can count either of them out. That primary is going to be on June 28th, so next Tuesday, and definitely one of the big ones to watch. Emily, you know, we're talking about how the events of January 6th and the Trump versus non-Trump GOP are battling with each other in these races, like the one we're just talking about in Illinois. And one that obviously people are watching very closely was this Tom Rice race in South Carolina, which I think that you mentioned before. And Tom Rice and Nancy Mace were two members from South Carolina, both of whom were on the wrong side of Trump to varying degrees. One won, one lost. And the headlines the next day, you put them right next to each other. It says, Trump back challenger wins. Trump back challenger loses. And, you know, it's all Trump, Trump, Trump. I mean, we were just talking about how significant the events of January 6th are. But at the same time, I am wondering if there's more to the story, you know, Are there other reasons that Tom Rice might have lost his race? Or does it really all come down to the fact that pro-Trump activists were mobilized against him? So I think there are three good pieces of context to have when you're trying to figure out why Nancy Mace won last night and why Tom Rice lost. And I'll just go ahead and say earlier in the show, I mentioned something like my crystal ball prediction had been super wrong. Uh, Because South Carolina requires there to be a runoff if you don't get more than 50% of the vote. I was chatting with my editor yesterday and I was just like, oh, I think they'll both probably wind up going off into runoffs. Nope, neither of them did. Russell Fry, Tom Rice's challenger, cleared that 50% threshold, as did Nancy Mace, both won outright. So I think one thing to note, Tom Rice did vote for impeachment and Nancy Mace did not. Now, Nancy Mace was very vocal after January 6th. She went on CNN. I believe she also went on ABC really sort of called out Trump, said, you know, his legacy had been wiped out, that he put people in danger, was sort of one of the uh, House Republicans who had really strong criticism for it. And then you kind of saw that criticism temper off. You seem she seemed to soften a little bit. She seemed sort of more willing to work with Republicans. There were other things she did vote to send criminal conviction charges against Steve Bannon to the Justice Department after he defied a subpoena for the January 6th committee the select committee. But for the most part, she's really kind of fallen back in line, been a Trump supporter. There was one kind of big moment after Trump endorsed her challenger, Katie Arrington, in February, where suddenly the next day on Twitter, there is a video of Nancy Mace standing outside of Trump Tower. And she's just like, hey, guys, I was an early supporter of Trump. I've worked on his campaigns before. I support him both in 2016 and 2020, and I will still support Trump. And at the moment, I think the big reaction side of DC was like, wow, what is this? But then I think her victory last night kind of showed that like, yeah, it's like she came out, she criticized Trump, but then she mostly went back in line is like, yes, I still support Trump as leader of our party. I'm still, you know, willing to be a team player if Trump is, is the leader of this party. Whereas for Tom Rice, he has said repeatedly over and over on TV shows, in interviews, in newspapers, that he does not regret his January 6th vote to impeach Trump, that he would vote that way if it happened again. He does still try and talk about his conservative record, but but he never sort of changed his tone on that. 
he was always kind of very straightforward that that's something that a vote that he believed in and a vote that he took. And it was a vote that Russell Fry used against him, a state representative. He's the one who got Trump's blessing out of a pretty crowded field. And he made sure to remind voters about that. There was one interesting ad that that he cut where there was like an actor playing Tom Rice and then like an actor playing the Joker and an actor playing the devil. And like it was supposed to be like a villains anonymous meeting. And after Tom Rice was like, oh, I did all this. The villains were like, you need to go like you can't be saved. That was the, the tone. And it's a, it's a very red district. So I, I fully expect Fry is going to wind up winning in November and becoming a congressman. In Mesa's district, it is still pretty red. It's an R plus 17. It's not quite as red as Rice's. And I think maybe you could argue that the constituency there is a little bit different. That also might have helped her be able to secure a victory, even after criticizing Trump. People must like her. I didn't know it was an R plus 17. So we had her on our show. She's pro-legalization of marijuana. She's pro-choice. And she has a very powerful story about that. And then the other thing that I found it rather endearing. She got upset with me a little bit the way we asked this question, but it was the day after Kevin McCarthy was shown to be lying to the New York Times and, and to the public about the January 6th and his conversations. We pinned her down and asked her a question. She gave an answer. She's like, well, I basically support Kevin McCarthy because he supports me. And, and it was very refreshing to hear somebody be that honest. But for her to take these controversial positions on those weed, abortion, and Trump in an R plus 17 district... Is she like some great campaigner? She has to be, right? Like you kind of said, I mean, if you if you're able to win a race, particularly after Trump endorsed someone against you and came out to campaign for them, you can't be particularly shabby on it. And I think it is, you know, people will talk about this a lot in the House is kind of knowing the district, knowing the district, knowing the district, knowing the district. One of the features of Nancy Mace's district, and this did change a little bit in redistricting, but you have Charleston, you have Charleston, South Carolina, you've got a major city and you've got the suburbs and you have seen that area kind of go sort of trend a little more blue than it has than than the rest of the state. I mean, this was the district, and granted it's changed now with redistricting, but when Nancy Mace was first elected, this was the district that elected Joe Cunningham. This was the district that gave it to a Republican for two years in 2018. And so I think there there is a sense that you've got a little bit more, you look at maps and you can kind of tell where the cities are because they're the ones that tend to be more blue than the surrounding red rural areas. Not to overgeneralize, but I think, you know, it's it's a different constituency. And even to a certain extent, I, I think there are sort of larger changes in the Republican Party, not so much on the abortion side of things, but I think on the marijuana legalization side of things, particularly when you look at, at states and how many states have legalized it. There is a bit of a sea change going on there. And I think, you know, Nancy Mace is, is aware that, you know, she's able to take a stance on that issue. And not everyone in her party is going to agree with her. Not all of her voters are going to be delighted with it, but it's not something that's going to keep her from being reelected. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg. If you'd like to hear more past Politics and Media 101 episodes or sign up for our newsletter, which will deliver our best of directly to your inbox, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Monday. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, Thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders, we hope to hear from you soon.